Welcome to episode 28 of Primary Care Update. I'm Dr. Mark A. Bell. I'm a family physician, professor at UGA, and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus, which is an evidence-based online primary care reference from Wiley. Please check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. Subscribers get all of the poems, basically a poem every day in their email, plus a powerful primary care-oriented and evidence-based online and handheld reference. The opinions expressed are those of the commentators, and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. So one of my usual partners in crime, John Hickner, is out exploring Croatia, and we're all very jealous, but he can't join us, but that's okay. Dr. Henry Berry is with us as usual, and we're again joined by family physician and one of the founders of Poems, Dr. David Slauson. Dave, welcome back. Glad to be here. Uh, Henry, how are you doing? I'm doing well. It's fall here in Michigan. We are having cool nights and warm days. The apples are delicious, and I just had some lovely cider from the local cider mill, and it was just delicious. Henry, I'm I'm very jealous. We it's we're setting records down here in Charlotte, North Carolina, for the hottest days of the year and the hottest summer. So I, I do miss those Michigan falls. Yeah, we're dr- we're going to fly up later yeah. today. And so we're going to leave 95 degrees behind and uh, hit, I think, 60 degrees when we get to Michigan. So I think looking forward to that. The first poem is uh, mine, and it talks about high-sensitivity troponin can rule out MI in many patients within two hours of presentation. So this was in the New England Journal by uh, Neumann, Tverenbold, and Oyeda, and it was in volume 380, page 2529. So this study was set in, this was a, a meta-analysis, but of cohort studies, and it was set in the ER, we have these new generation of high-sensitivity troponin tests that are better able to detect low levels of troponin, and in theory could be better at ruling out MI very soon after the onset of chest pain, which is great because then you can get patients home who are safe to send home and work up the rest. So these researchers combine the individual patient-level data from 15 prospective cohort studies. They had over 23,000 patients. They all were coming into the ED with chest pain, clinically suspected MI, and no ST elevation. They had ST elevation, they got worked up. So they all measured the troponin IRT when they hit the door, and then every about one to three hours after that. Um, The researchers used data from 9,600 patients in five studies to develop a risk stratification tool, and then data from the remaining 13,000 patients in 10 different studies to validate it. So that's a really, I think, robust and and believable validation because they developed it in one set of patients and then validated in completely different populations, uh, centers, hospitals, et cetera. So they looked at the risk of MI or death within 30 days. And if they had the data, they also looked at one to two year outcomes. The median age of uh, the participants was 62 years, 62% were men and 36% had a previous history of heart disease. So this is a pretty typical, you know, acute chest pain kind of group. Everyone got a baseline trope. Uh, the authors then they grouped the patients into early resampling, which was the second test was 45 minutes to two hours after the first one, and late resampling, where it was more than two hours up to three and a half hours. Then they summarized all the different combinations of the initial trope the resampling, the cutoffs, whether it increased by how much it had to increase. And then they created this really cool looking kind of a disc display tool for identifying patients at low risk and high risk for MI. So one example, a patient with an initial trope, I of less than four nanograms per liter when they hit the door, 
and a second value one hour later that had risen by less than three had a 0.3% chance of MI and a 0.2% 30-day risk of MI or death. So that's really low. That's the glass half empty. The glass half full is 99.8% risk of not having an MI or dying in the next 30 days. So that's a patient who could be sent home, I think, and worked up uh, in a more leisurely fashion as an outpatient. This calculator is available online. They did a nice job with this. Uh, it's very simple to use. Uh, you go to the website, compass-mi.com. So C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I.com. They also give us some long-term risks for patients who have this MI ruled out initially. Another example, a patient with initial trope of 2.5, has a 2% one-year risk and a 3.5% two-year risk of MI or death, which is only a little bit higher than that in the general population. So bottom line, the study provides some useful guidance for interpreting these new generation of high-sensitivity troponin tests. And in a lot of patients, we can effectively rule out MI within one to two hours of presentation, send them home, and then safely work them up as outpatients. Um, Henry, any comments? Yeah, I, I like all of these nerdy kinds of tests and th as guides to decision making. But the real question is, do they change clinician behavior? Our residents still get called to admit low-risk patients who present with chest pain and have um, a negative troponin, and it results in excess cost, excess testing, stress for the patient, as well as overloading the hospital systems. And I understand that in many very busy ERs that um, uh, waiting times and getting throughput is a, is a big deal, but this is really a, a, a big concern if, uh, if you have somebody who is a clinician who is risk averse, not very risk tolerant. And um, for those individuals, none of these tests are likely to actually influence their behaviors. <laughs> yeah, that's true. There's the human factor, I guess. And, and you know, I think with any of these protocols, you, you do have to use your, your judgment and not every patient with uh, will, will fit this and, and will be comfortable sending home. But anyway, I think it provides some good guidance. Dave, uh, I saw you dropped off, but I think you're back on. Do you have any comments? My thoughts on this, um, you know, I, here in Charlotte where I practice, there's a, like an emergency room or an urgent care center like on every corner. So this is not something that that I, I would do or my current group that I work with would check troponins ourselves. But one of our former faculty was actually um, a doc in a small town in North Carolina, Shelby, North Carolina. And he said it wasn't unusual for his patients to with come in with chest pain to refuse to go to the ER. They were either afraid of the ER or didn't want to pay the big cost. But so he found himself in the position sometimes of having to check troponins. And I think something like this that was quick like this would be incredibly useful in that situation. It's going to be interesting to see sort of where the future goes and medical legal issues. But I can see where something like this, as you mentioned, Mark, is very promising and might be a great way to reduce costs and keep people out of the ER with, that are sort of already at low risk for for heart attack based on their, you know, their presentation of their chest pain. Yeah. And I think um, uh, there is actually a point of care troponin test. There was just an article in JAMA Cardiology last week evaluating it in comparison with the laboratory uh, troponin test and found that it was similarly accurate. So we may be seeing these become more widely available, for, at least in urgent care settings and at the point of care in the ED, and perhaps eventually even in primary care, although given the volume of chest pain, as you say, it's probably 
not worth it. So, um, Henry, it's time for the quiz. So in previous episodes, we've talked a lot about the detection and management of alcohol use disorders, prevention and management of hangovers, and so on. We've really emphasized the negative health effects of alcohol, but haven't really discussed possible positive health effects. So the quiz is positive health effects associated with alcohol consumption include one, they've only been observed with wine consumption, two, have been observed in men, but not in women. Three, have been confounded by many factors, including food choices. Four, have been clearly established using high quality randomized trials. Stay tuned. Okay, thanks, Henry. Uh, Dave, it's your turn to cover a poem. I think you're gonna tell us a little about tramadol. Yes, so um, this one, when I saw it come out, uh, was actually very interesting to me. Um, you know, we, we're all going through this whole thing about the whole opioid crisis and how they were marketed early on, that they weren't addictive. And um, I know we all remember early on when Tramadol first came out that it was touted that it was um, definitely not really an opioid. It was kind of a non-opioid and it wasn't addictive. And, and like many things, we sort of believed what we heard and didn't always ask as we probably should have more at the time, what was the evidence but this was a study that was recently published in the British Medical Journal, um, volume 365, uh, uh, 849. Um, Fields and Haberman and his group uh, looked at basically a, a retrospective cohort of patients that were giving short-acting opioids after surgery. They started off with about 450,000 of them. Of those, about 360,000 actually filled the prescription for the opioid. And it included hydrocodone about 53% of the time, oxycodone 38% of the time, and tramadol about 4% of the time. The data showed that about 7% of the patients had what they defined as prolonged use, which means they continued to receive at least one more prescription uh, in the 90 to 180 days after surgery. And then about a half percent had what was defined as long-term use, which means they continued to receive opioids for at least three months after the first three months following surgery. So this was up to six months. Now, interestingly, the patients who were prescribed tramadol were at least as likely as patients given the other opioids to have prolonged use, and they were actually significantly more likely to require long-term opioid use. So if anything, you know, it's touted that it's a lower risk of abuse, but it looks like tramadol, at least when it's used after surgery, is as likely as, or more likely than other opioids to really uh, create long-term use and the potential for dependence and even abuse. So, you know, looking at this, I mean, I guess I wonder if what happened was the surgeon knew that a patient perhaps had a problem with opioid use or the patient self-identified that way. And they said, well, okay, well, we're going to give you tramadol because it's safer, but it was in a higher risk. Maybe that population who got the tramadol was at baseline higher risk for addictive behavior. So I guess that was one question that I had. I don't know if they, they addressed that or not. Yeah. Not that, not that I am aware that they did that, but that's a good point, Mark. 
Yeah, so that was exactly my point. This is a retrospective study, and so the clinician's judgment and the influences on that initial decision are largely absent from these kinds of administrative studies. And so quite often there are factors, uh, what we might call confounding by indication, for example, that might explain this. But I think the bottom line, though, is that, and Dave, you, you made that point very well, is that there's still a very low rate of long-term use regardless of what is being used. Yeah. And I thought that was kind of the glass half full part of this, you know, maybe that's my phrase for the day, is that, you know, the the rates were actually quite low of this prolonged use, lower than I guess I would have expected, perhaps, you know, based on the media uh, attention. That's not to say it's not a problem, that it doesn't happen, but uh, it was a little reassuring to see that those prolonged rates were uh, relatively low. And I think a big part of it has to do in other studies with the size of that initial prescription. Are you getting 10 or 12 hydrocodone, or are you getting 60 oxycodone? That, that makes a big difference in terms of subsequent problems. And also the number of refills. Are, is the physician willing to refill multiple times within that first month or two? Uh, that can lead to problems. So good stuff, good information. I, I think the bottom line message is we can't assume that Ultram or Tramadol is perfectly safe. And like any of these drugs, we have to be thoughtful about when and how we, we use them. Next, we're going to talk about some clinical prediction rules. It's one of my favorite topics. And I thought I'd cover a couple of relatively new clinical prediction rules for diagnosing pulmonary embolism. I think many of our listeners know about the Wells rule. There's also a Geneva rule and a PISA rule, and there's several others. If you go to Essential Evidence, we've got them all as interactive calculators. But there are a couple of new ones that I've just added to um, essential evidence that I wanted to go over. So the first is called the PERC rule, and I wish I could remember what PERC stood for. I think something about pulmonary embolism rule out criteria. I think that's what it is. And so basically in patients who are presenting with clinically suspected PE, acute shortness of breath or chest pain, you would evaluate for PE if they have any one of the following, and that's an O2 sat less than or equal to 94%, heart rate greater than or equal to 100, age of 50 or older, unilateral leg swelling, hemoptysis, recent trauma or surgery, prior history of PE or DVT, or exogenous estrogen users. So if you have any of those, you should work them up for PE. The next one is called the YEARS algorithm. It was recently covered in New England Journal, and they have a variation for both uh, non-pregnant and pregnant adults. And this algorithm is a little simpler, and I actually I like it. I don't know what year stands for, and I've read the article multiple times, and I still can't figure out where they got this years stuff. But anyway, it's, you'll hear it referred to as the years algorithm. The first thing is you just look at uh, three risk factors and figure out, do they have any of the following? Clinical signs of DVT, hemoptysis, or PE was felt to be the most likely diagnosis, all things considered. If they have none of those risk factors and the D-dimer is less than 1,000, you can rule out PE. If they have one or more of these risk factors, but the D-dimer is less than 500, PE is also ruled out. Everyone else needs a workup. Generally, they recommend CT pulmonary angiography. So that's your clinical prediction rule corner. It's now time for Henry to talk about his poem. Henry, tell us about steroids and uh, pneumonia. Thank you. So the paper that um, I'm going to review by Seagraves was published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine just this past July, and it asks the question, in adults and children with community-acquired pneumonia, does the addition of corticosteroid treatment 
compared with usual care improve outcomes. So these authors did a really nice job. They searched multiple databases. They did not restrict um, language. And they identified 17 randomized trials with just under 2,500 cases of radiographically confirmed pneumonia in children and adults. And they looked to see what were the outcomes of corticosteroid versus placebo or no treatment plus usual care. Now, this gets kind of messy because the steroid doses varied in the type, the dose, the route, but the average dose in adults was somewhere in the equivalent of 40 to 50 milligrams of prednisone daily for an average of about a week. The children were dosed based on weight. And what they found was that in adults with severe pneumonia, the corticosteroids decreased mortality, but in no other group. Okay? On the other hand, though, it reduced usual time to clear, fewer clinical failures, shorter hospital stays, ICU, all of the usual things that are annoying to patients when they're in the hospital. In children, uh, it, the corticosteroids reduced the likelihood of clinical failure and decreased the time to cure, meaning they got better faster. Um, but only two trials looked at mortality in children. What are the downsides? Well, elevated blood sugars occur more often in um, children and adults treated with corticosteroids. Now, there are a couple of minor flaws. They didn't look for publication bias, and for most of the outcomes, the studies were consistent in their findings, but there was some variability there. Now, we do have a poem that's going to be coming up uh, soon that I think uh, Dave, you or Alan recently wrote that looked at combining steroids plus changing the systems of care, sort of a comprehensive approach, not improving mortality, whereas these data would suggest that at least in adults with severe pneumonia, um, the mortality is improved. So we'll have to dissect that study a little bit more carefully and see uh, what were the subsets of um, uh, the, uh, where, the, where the systems failed. Yeah, I think that was one that Alan's done, but we should look at that one because it's important to get that, put the whole thing in context there. <clears throat> this this is interesting because we've been seeing a lot of evidence on this, and this this is actually uh, goes back to the editorial that we all wrote um, about a year ago about why it is that uh, that good why it is that evidence sometimes takes so long to get into clinical practice, and I think this was one of the examples that we had, and we kind of talked about the idea that it really just hardly makes sense pathophysiologically that steroids would help pneumonia to get better. And so I think that's one of the reasons why it's been difficult for this to be, um, you know, uh, accepted in clinical practice. It kind of reminds me also of the whole problem when steroids first came out with preventing hyaline membrane disease and, you know, the bad effects of preterm labor. It was a long time, I think they say it was as long as 13 years before that was accepted in clinical practice. And part of the whole purpose of the Cochrane collaboration was to uh, make it so that this wouldn't happen. And I think the Cochrane logo is actually a memorial uh, that is kind of a let's not forget this to all the children who would have benefited if <clears throat> the evidence had gotten out into practice a little sooner. So again, a lot of times that pathophysiologic thinking get stuck with us and we tend to ignore the evidence when it's there. Dave, you know, you're absolutely right. That was um, the Cochrane logo. If people go to the Cochrane website and see that little blue and white logo, that is the actual forest plot from that 
systematic review. And the Cochrane collaboration started out as the what's called the Oxford Perinatal database. And so they focused on perinatal trials, but then eventually, of course, it expanded much more broadly. Yeah, you know, you and Dave, you and Alan Shaughnessy have been writing uh, some really good work lately talking about the idea of what should work based on pathophysiology being the basis for much of what's taught in medical school and much of what physicians do. But what we should be focusing on is what actually does work based on clinical trials. And so uh, this is a, a good example of that. Yep. So um, let's see, we have a quiz answer coming up. And so I think Henry's going to walk us through that. So positive health effects associated with alcohol consumption include, one, it only occurs with wine consumption. Two, has been observed in men, but not in women. Three, have been confounded by many factors, including food choices. Four, have been clearly established using high quality randomized trials. Well, Dear listeners, the positive health effects of alcohol clearly are arguable and are precariously perched on a weak foundation of anecdote, observational studies, and animal models. In the 1980s, epidemiologists noticed that the French appeared to have lower rates of heart disease in spite of high rates of uh, tobacco consumption and consumption of foods rich in saturated fat, like that lovely foie gras and all those runny cheeses and stuff like that. In trying to figure out possible explanations, wine, especially red wine, kind of bubbled its way up to the number one explanation. And then in the 1990s, the first studies of the Mediterranean diet, which at that time included wine consumption, added further support to the possible heart protective effects of wine. These early studies suggested that it was only with wine and not with beer. But for those of us of German descent, very happy that in 2006, some Danish researchers snooped into the grocery bags of people and found that wine buyers were also much more likely to buy fruits, vegetables, and other healthy foods. And that's been supported in other kinds of studies. More recently, people have tried to account for confounders like food choices, and they found comparable protection regardless of which fermented beverage is consumed. Unfortunately, there remains a paucity of data on distilled spirits. Now, you may recall back in the 1990s and early 2000s, the Nurses Health Study actually tried to look at some of this, and they found that the relative risk of having a heart event in women who engaged in four healthy behaviors was only about 30% of people who didn't engage, and those behaviors were exercising regularly, eating healthy foods, had a BMI under 25, and didn't smoke. What happened if you added moderate daily alcohol consumption? It was cut in half. They also calculated the population attributable risk fraction for those behaviors. And for the four behaviors, it was 64%, and it shot up to 82% with the additional of, addition of moderate alcohol consumption. What that means is that if you took away all of those good behaviors, that would explain almost 80% of all of the heart disease that's out there. I'm not aware of any randomized trials of alcohol consumption for heart health, though. Guys, are you aware of any? Yeah, I doubt that that's likely to happen, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, either way. I wouldn't want to get randomized to the wrong group in that one. Yeah, and I know what the wrong group is for me. <laughs> I've been sitting here mumbling, nerdy, nerdy, nerdy yeah. with my ears closed. As I'm, I'm just not going to say too much on this one, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, we... 
I think moderation in all things is a good thing. Exercise, eat well, and listen to Primary Care Update. Tell your friends. Uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks with more poems. And thanks for listening.